Many times when choosing a payroll service, you have to choose between a new startup with a great app or an established company whose tech may feel behind the times. With OnPay, you get the best of both worlds, a great app from an established company that's been providing payroll services for over 30 years in all 50 states. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, OnPay, later in the episode. If we thought we had an explosion of these new small business-focused banking apps that were popping up in these banks, we're going to see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds in the next six months. Well, and it's not just like new ones. It's that existing companies that have anything to do with payments or or balances are going to start integrating this into their app now. So instead of having to send the money to your existing bank account, they'll just spin one up for you like on the fly. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Clockshark. Now more than ever, your clients with teams in the field are looking to reduce contact and automate their manual paperwork processes. The team at Clockshark has been busy scrambling to keep up with demand by helping accountants move clients from frustrating paper timesheets to their much-loved mobile time tracking app. Even with this increased demand, Clockshark continues to provide fast and delightful support. They're actively working with accountants and bookkeepers to implement product feedback and improvements to their already robust app that includes features like crew tracking, scheduling, overtime notifications, routes, geofencing, locations, job costing, budgeting, and reporting. To try the timesheet app that's taken over the title for best customer support, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash clockchart. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash C-L-O-C-K-S-H-A-R-K. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Relay Financial. Wouldn't it be great if you could open a new business bank account 100% online without having to go to a physical bank branch? Relay is a 100% online bank that is 100% focused on small business. With Relay, you can effortlessly collaborate with team members, manage payments, and issue corporate cards all from a bank. Accountants and bookkeepers love Relay because they get a partner portal, can manage staff access without compromising security, and enjoy enriched direct bank feeds to QuickBooks Online and Xero. To sign up in less than 10 minutes and enjoy stress-free banking with no monthly fees or monthly minimum balances, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash relay. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash R-E-L-A-Y. Welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. Well, it's that most wonderful time of the year, David. The Christmas tree is up in our house. All social norms have been abandoned. We're we're in full holiday mode. I'm about to do that sometime today. I need to go to the storage facility and get the you know the boxes of Christmas tree decorations. I'll be doing that today. All right. Well, I have a five year old, so like this was we we had trouble delaying it until after Thanksgiving. That was like the struggle. So now the tree's up. He's happy. We're ready to celebrate. And I've got a list of ideas that our listeners might be interested in for gifts for people who work from home. I know a lot of our listeners are remote. They're in the cloud. So if you're, if you're looking for a gift for a colleague or maybe for yourself, there's, there's a great article on the Wirecutter called The Best Gifts for People Who Work From Home. Uh, there's lots of good stuff on here. There's you know a permanent scratch pad, a work anywhere lap desk, comfy slippers for the kitchen to home office commute. Slippers, yes. One of my favorite is a sign to keep household interlopers at bay. Basically, an on air or on the phone sign that lights up that you could mount over your office door 
to warn people not to come in. I, I have those in my Amazon shopping cart, but I went cheap and I bought, you know, like the the room service door hanging you get at a uh, yeah, yeah, hotel. Yeah. Basically, it's like that, but it says on air and I hang it on the door handle when, I, when I'm recording the podcast and other times, I don't want people to open the door. So, if you want to go- The light would be so much nicer. Well, the light's nice because you can control it with a remote. So, you can be sitting at your desk, Zoom call starts, turn on the on air sign that's outside your office. And then, you know, obviously, you have to train your family members not to come in when that light is on. But I, I feel like it's definitely better than a sign on the door, which you might forget to take off. Or just telling people you have to knock. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get one of these. They're not cheap. The two different signs that are recommended in this article are from Light Me Up Signs. And they are 120 or 135 each. And I wonder if they have been bidded up because of demand. You know how stuff... Uh, I think so. Because like, why was eyeballing these? Because I was thinking back when we were doing conferences in person and we were recording live. Yeah. I think I was pricing these out and I could get them for like 40 bucks for us to have it at, <laughs> on our, our table at conferences to show when we were actually live recording. Some part of me thinks I think I want a retro one, just like an old school, like red light bulb and one of those metal yeah, that's cages. Yeah, that's what they are. Like one of these looks like that. It's, okay, it's, cool. it's like the Art Deco, you know, on air in that, you know, 19... 19- 10 oh, style. Right. Yeah, I really want one of those. What else is on this list? A headset to sound better on video calls. Wirecutter is recommending the Jabra Evolve 75, which is $200, but really isn't that much money to spend when you like literally wear it for your entire workday most of the time. A webcam to make you look better. The Logitech C920S HD Pro webcam for $80 is recommended there. That though, those have came down. Uh, yeah, there was a be. time there in May when all the webcams it was like two hundred thirty. You couldn't get a webcam on Amazon. They were two hundred thirty-five bucks. You never, and there were eight weeks of shipping. Now that's good to know the market's caught up to demand now. A few other items. A non-tech one is a Hasami porcelain mug for twenty-five dollars, handmade in Japan and designed to last a lifetime. It's a favorite among the wire cutter staff. That could be a really nice gift for a coworker, perhaps. Artisan coffee boxes. This is a thing that's become popular is ordering or subscribing to a coffee club like you would a wine club. I haven't done it yet, but I'm kind of tempted because I've really upped my coffee game since being quarantined for like what? <laughs> We're coming up on nine months here. I, I, that's actually, a good one. Firms, I, I think if you want to give gifts to your employees that are working at home, sending coffee is really the way to go because I think alcohol is tricky. There's alcohol yes. delivery services, but then if somebody's not there to sign for it, it's tricky. And like somebody sent some alcohol and it broke the glass and it leaked everywhere. And it's, it, it's oh, a little yeah, trickier, yeah. but, but coffee ships well, you get it. It's a nice surprise. Like I can, if I think about all the things like Melio sent to us as we work at home, coffee's the, been the best every single time. Certainly with coffee, you know, you are, uh, you're going to be safe. Like I haven't, I don't think I've ever met an accountant or a bookkeeper who doesn't drink coffee. It's like kind of part of the requirement of the job. I think I saw, so Intuit made a video kind of thanking the essential workers of accounts and bookkeepers. Yeah. And, and it kind of goes through their day. And there's about 40 different accounts and bookkeepers in there. And there's a sequence of about 45 seconds of showing all of them brewing their coffee <laughs> and getting their coffee starting their day. Like, so absolutely. Like for sure. Interestingly, we've got some non-cloud tech gift items that may be of interest. Paper planners are still very popular and notebooks for journaling. There is, I will admit, just a case for having a notebook on your desk where you can jot down thoughts. It's, it feels different than putting it into OneNote. Uh, that's a good one. Desk calendars. Yeah. So check out this article. Go search for wire cutter gifts for people who work from home. 
you'll find this and the link will also be in the show notes. So if you find something there for a coworker or a family member or a special person in your life, you're welcome. So should we kind of overview like what other articles you have or should we just jump straight into news? Let's do our overview, right? So uh, checking in on what I've got, employers adding jobs, but we actually lost jobs in accounting. We've got PPP, big news on PPP with uh, all the loan data now revealed by Freedom of Information Act requests. So we have more insight. Uh, Gusto also had a report on PPP. What else? We have uh, big news from Stripe. They, they launched a big API, which is very, very interesting. Remember My Payroll HR? You know, that was one mm. of the bigger stories of 2019. It was. Well, now the bank is suing the accounting firm. So there's some details on that. Accounting Today released their top 100 most influential people. You're on the list, Blake. Congratulations. Oh, and you as well, David. Congratulations. And let's see more practice management stuff. Accounting Today, they're also out with their 2021 year ahead report survey of accounting firms. Some interesting data over there. Um, I got something on escape rooms. Okay. I'm looking forward to that. And something on, there's a, a phishing email that pretends it's a QuickBooks invoice and it's mm-hmm. really well done. And I will talk about that as well. I'm starting to feel like my house is an escape room. This is just one big, <laughs> long escape room that I didn't know I was in. So where do we want to start? Let, let's knock out PPP because I think it ties into uh, other small business news that I have on here as well. All right. The news specifically in our industry is that the AICPA has joined in calling for PPP expense forgiveness legislation. And I feel like they've been calling for this in one form or another for weeks now, and we keep reporting on it. And now this is a new letter, like a December 3rd letter. Like they're, they're really stressing this now. Yes. So the American Institute of CPAs has joined with over 560 business and trade organizations, urging Congress to pass legislation to allow companies that have received forgiveness on their Paycheck Protection Program loans to be able to deduct expenses from their taxes. Let's hope Congress passes something to, to make that happen because people are, you know, we're coming up at the end of the year and tax season is right around the corner and, you know, people are going to need to know what to do. Uh, so there's that. But probably the bigger story is that the SBA was forced in court by a Freedom of Information Act request to reveal all the PPP loan amounts and names and addresses for all the recipients. Previously, they'd only revealed that for loans above $150,000. News organizations like NBC News took them to court for that, saying it's a public program, you can't do that, and you promised you would reveal it anyway. Uh, And so they lost in court, they decided not to appeal, and all that data is now online. So you can go and you can search all the PPP loans at searchppp.com. That's one of the organizations that has taken all this data and put it online so everyone can look for it. Some interesting facts that we have learned about all this money. Most of the PPP money, according to the Washington Post, went to a fraction of the recipients. 87% of the loans were for less than $150,000. But this new data shows that more than half of the $522 billion went to bigger businesses. So the top 5% of loans accounted for more than half of all loan value. And the top 1% of loans accounted for more than a quarter of all the loan value, meaning that although the the volume of loans, vast majority were under $150,000, that top five, top 1%, like those were giant loans for bigger businesses up to $10 million. So this is calling into question 
is this program, I think it's a legitimate question, is this really helping small businesses or is it primarily benefiting larger businesses? And there's talk in Congress about, you know, reopening this program, expanding it, allowing people to take more money that have already taken money. I feel like we're just being very hypocritical across the board here. In that letter that was written um, on December 3rd by the ICPA, uh, right? That letter goes into to, to really talk about like, hey, because you haven't made a decision, Congress, now you're going to hit them with a tax bill after they've already spent their PPP loan money. So now you have all these small businesses that are not going to be able to pay this tax bill. They're just, you can't take the hit on this now. The money's not going to be there, right? Right. And if you combine that, you know, there's all this, you know, oh, over here on the other side, like small business Saturday, shop with the small businesses, shop local. Now the re- they release all these names, right? So you have all this shaming going on and then it's getting very localized. Like I'm seeing small like things about the Oregon, they have an article and all the brewers that took money to stay mm-hmm. afloat. Myrtle Beach and Surfside Beach, like, these are teeny little resort towns and they're publishing the individual businesses and Joe's Plumbing, you know, and the, the $100,000 he got to keep his business running, right? It's just like all this shaming's going on. In the meantime, the real question that's not being asked is, was this effective? Was this a good use? Should they have just given everybody money and not done the PPP? But I feel like there's this big, like, pointing the focus at small businesses is the worst. Right. The, 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 this is not where the abuse is happening. Exactly. And that's what the data is showing, right? Is that the top 5% of loans accounted for more than half of the value. So most of this money is going to the businesses at the top of the scale, which you know, they can be up to 500 employees. And for certain industries, it can be far more than that because they're they're exempted from those rules. The focus is completely wrong. And, and the problem is too, that like the arguments about extending the program are all about how, here's an example of this business that would have gone under if they hadn't gotten the money and they interview that person and, and you think, oh yeah, of course, well, we need to extend this program. But then there's all the businesses that got the money that maybe didn't need it, that probably didn't need it. And there's some data from Gusto. They did an analysis of PPP money among their base payroll, the Gusto, the payroll and HR Mm -hmm. provider. So they have like tens of thousands of companies using Gusto that got PPP loans and Gusto helped them. So they have all this data and they went through and and compared it, the PPP loan data to the employment data because they know, you know, how many employees everyone has and when they're laying people off, when they're hiring people. And they found that when the PPP covered period expired, so the money ran out, active employment reduced by 0.43%. And that extrapolates out to, among all the companies that receive PPP loans, 232,000 jobs. So PPP money expires and 232,000 jobs go away, are lost net. Now that's overall among food and beverage sorry, not food and beverage, facilities and retail trade, then hiring dropped 1% to 1.3%. So obviously more among restaurants and that sort of thing uh, and hospitality. But I'm looking at this number and I'm thinking to myself, well, what does this say? If the PPP money ran out and we lost 232,000 jobs, that's not a lot of jobs for the amount of money we spent, which was half a trillion dollars. I would expect that if the PPP money was keeping people employed, that many more jobs would have been lost. Does that make sense? Yeah. Ultimately, I think we had some data last week or the week before. It's it's about $227,000 per job saved. And I think I saw a tweet about Australia. Australia's program, maybe uh, they have their JobKeeper program. And it's basically $100,000 per job saved. Right. 
maybe this was not the best way to distribute money into the economy. Now, I think it, I too believe it helped a lot of small businesses like bridge that gap because nobody knew what was going on in April and May. It was very, very scary. Right. Nobody had any revenue coming in. Remember when the AICPA, right when this pandemic started, it was just them and paychecks at first. And then they opened it up and they, they got ADP and they got into it and they got everybody in uh, Gusto, they got everybody else involved in the like design of the PPP loan data reports, whatever, whatever they were doing, they were working on together as a coalition of payroll providers. Why doesn't the AICPA lead them, all these that coalition they created, to create an industry-wide report of this data? That would be great. Like it's great that Gusto did it, but in a way, like in the grand scheme of things, Gusto they, they barely have numbers in compared to an ADP or a paychecks, right? right. Or you know, even into it, right? So if these companies pulled this data together, we could really get an accurate reading on if this is an effective program or not. Well, and maybe the reason it hasn't happened is because when you look at the data, and I, I think, you know, Gusto is small compared to the payroll industry as a whole, but like they've got enough data here to be a reasonable sample, right? Tens of I thousands. I, I agree. They, they're they big enough now where they're, they have a, yeah. a bell curve of, of clients across the country. They're not just like only, you know. And it looks like, I mean, you read into this article, like they applied data science to this. Like they have an economist, Luke Pardue wrote this. He's employed at Gusto. And so, you know, like this is not just some, you know, marketing person like pulling some data together, right? (laughs) I don't know why they haven't done this, David, but like maybe one of the reasons is that the answer isn't really what they want to hear because the AICPA, they're advocating for small businesses. I get it. And for CPAs, but like the program itself which the AICPA has supported very, very strongly saying this is a good program. It's helping just to me, doesn't seem like it's a very good use of money. It's not very efficient. And we would be much better off putting the money into other programs. Like if the goal is to help people stay employed, then fund unemployed, or if the goal is to help people pay rent or to maintain a paycheck, like it would be much more efficient to just pay people unemployment than to spend 200 and something thousand dollars to keep a job. And you're only keeping that job for like that time period too. It's not like you're keeping the job forever necessarily. That job could still go away. You're paying a lot of money to temporarily halt somebody from losing their job when you could probably pay their salary for years if you needed to just directly. Yeah. But in fairness, when this program was dropped as well, it was, it was an eight week program. Remember when we were all, we were all going to be back to normal by Easter. Right. right. Remember? So like, I don't think it was, there was a lot of long-term thoughts in this. It was definitely rushed, but I don't think anybody expected us nine months later to still be. Right. Right. Well, and, and, and hindsight is 2020. 20. I'm not saying the program was like, well, I think it was very poorly designed in a lot of ways, but the thing that concerns me is that we're talking about extending it now. And the evidence is that the money is going to a lot of businesses that didn't really need it. And my concern is that if we just extend it without changing the requirements, then it's going to go again to the companies that don't really need it all that much. If we want to solve the unemployment problem, which is the big problem in this economy right now, we need to direct that money to those people. That's my concern. I mean, how do we know who needed or didn't need it? Even Sports Illustrated is like shaming Tom Brady for having his company take one. So, And I'm a Tom Brady hater and I'm going to come to his defense here. When when this happened, he, he, so he has like a vitamin supplement company where he has a small little company, right? And um, no, it's nowhere produced the revenue of his salary. But when his company applied for this loan, at that time, he didn't even know if he was going to have a job that year. Nobody knew if the NFL was going to play football. They don't. They don't pay you in the NFL. They don't give you a check if they don't play game. If you don't play the game, so like everybody had necessity because nobody knew how the year was going to turn out. So 
There's an article on small business trends. There was a survey that was done. Alignable does a survey, did it two months ago with small businesses, and now they've done it again. Pessimism two months ago for small businesses of them staying open was at 42%. Now it's at 48%. So small businesses, the vibe is getting worse. They're, they're really feeling that it's harder and harder. Um, those that are in hospitality and travel, they're 62%. They don't think they're going to survive the next three months. Yeah. Um, other gym owners, health and wellness, spas, like everybody that's directly affected now by the lockdowns are the ones that are afraid they're not going to make it. Right. So, so where do we distribute the money to? So this is an interesting little piece of data, though. 25% of accounting firms said they're, they have concerns of them making it through the rest of this, this storm here, this COVID-related storm in the economy. But they're not going to close. You know, it's not, like, it's not like an accounting firm is going to you know, just up and close. They'll probably you know, lay some people off and, you know, we have data on that, right? How's the uh, accounting industry doing? At least our part of it, the, the yeah. accounting. I mean, the survey essentially is they're not going to make enough money in Q4 to stay afloat. Remember, the, the, there's uh, some data we talked about a week ago, two weeks ago, 25% of firms still aren't, or 20% of firms are still not doing things on the cloud with their clients. They're still in person in office. Maybe those are the ones that are fearing, the, the, the ones that, that just haven't figured out how to, to navigate this world um, with their clients yet. So, I've got some employment numbers specifically for accounting. So employers added for the month of November, 245,000 jobs, which sounds like it would be good news, but it's unfortunately less than we wanted. Job growth has been slowing month over month. So we're kind of stagnating around 6.7% unemployment, which is a lot higher than we want to be. And even though jobs were added in November, we lost 2,400 jobs in the accounting profession and uh, specifically accounting and bookkeeping services, I believe, where we lost those jobs. And accounting principles has a great jobs report. Search for accounting principles jobs report. They update it every month and it shows you a nice chart of you know how many jobs in the economy were lost and gained and the national unemployment rate, and then it breaks down the industry's growth. So, so yeah, the 2,400 jobs that were lost were for accounting and bookkeeping services. And year over year, we are down 2.3% in accounting and bookkeeping services. It's still a lot better though than like real estate, rental and leasing, which is down 5.1%, temporary help services down 10%. And of course, you know, the national unemployment rate, which is, which is ticked up 3.2% year over year. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by OnPay. OnPay is an easy-to-use, full-service payroll and HR software that is the right fit for all your clients, whether they have just one or 500 employees to stay organized, save time, and get compliant. OnPay includes the best-in-class integrations to benefit providers, workers' comp plans, QuickBooks, and Xero. They also handle all the complicated stuff that other payroll providers don't, like agricultural payrolls, including Form 943, multi-state payrolls, and employees with H-2A visas. With OnPay's newly released report designer, you can use enterprise-level data and over 50 data points to create multiple report views for all your client stakeholders, be it the C-suite, departments, or HR. Right now, Cloud Accounting Podcast listeners can get three free months of top-rated OnPay payroll and HR service. To learn more, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash onpay. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash O-N-P-A-Y. Onpay, nobody takes better care of your clients. (laughs) 
So let's talk about a little about like possible practice management stuff. So remember last week when we talked about those virtual HQs? Yes. Right. And you're talking about virtual headquarters, et cetera, things like that. Well, what about virtual escape rooms? So how does how does that work? Because I understand an escape room is like a place you go where you're locked in a room and you have to solve a puzzle to get out with your friends and family. Yes. And this this works virtually because if you there's fraud at a company and you want to train your staff in cybersecurity and you want to train them in security and fraud and recognizing that, you could put your staff in a virtual escape room and they could get all their security training done in that fun way. Oh, that's great. So they have to like solve a fraud case or something. Yes. And specifically, so this uh, there's a company that has put this out. Um, sorry, it's called a company called Living Security. Mm-hmm. And first, what they actually did is they first designed physical escape rooms. They would actually ship suitcases of the props to clients, even flying in hosts to train uh, employees at companies and how to run these organizations across or run these exercises. But then they pivoted, obviously, when everything went to the forced lockdown. And their actual plot of this The threat here is to identify and capture an insider threat within your organization before he or she is able to divert payroll funds. Oh, that's a good one. Very applicable to us in in our space. Uh, And it's, it's, it really like makes a lot of sense of, and there's always this fine line of people try to take physical things and move it to the virtual world. And that doesn't really make sense, but an escape room that trains your employees in the security processes and security techniques and security awareness makes so much sense. There are many times I've sat through this as a PowerPoint slide and it was lame. <laughs> yeah, gamifying it is 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 awesome. I love that. And then on top of that, the, the worst part of doing like that corporate training stuff is they don't want you to do it too fast. So even if you know it and you can click through the slides super fast, they put you on a timer where you have to spend so many seconds on each slide of the deck because they don't want you to go through it fast. But with the escape room, you're actually motivated to solve the crime faster. Right. And learn and learn the takeaways and, and all that. That's great. So I do know an accounting firm in Albany that probably should have used this training for the employees to detect a payroll fraud. That would be Teal Becker, which was the auditor of the holding company for My Payroll HR. Our listeners will recall that My Payroll HR was at the center of a multi-million dollar scam involving payroll funds that suddenly disappeared and hundreds of thousands of employees didn't get their paychecks and it was a it was a giant mess involving the bank the payroll processor the the payments company well he had he had 45 companies he was cutting money from each company moving the money around and then eventually he just he it crossed that line where it's like, well, I have a payroll company and we're moving $36 million every week. I'll just route that to my other bank account one week and the employees won't get the money. Yeah. And his timing was off and, and the payroll failed for you know $36 million. So what is, the, what is this lawsuit that is going on? So Pioneer Bank was the bank that gave the loans to Michael Mann's uh, holding company. ValueWise. And ValueWise, they were audited by the CPA firm. And not only that, they audited all the subsidiaries from 2010 to 2018. So Teal Becker is the accounting firm. Michael Mann is the CEO of HR, who owned all these uh, companies through ValueWise. Apparently, Pioneer Bank and a consortium of two other banks gave ValueWise a $42 million line of credit in 2019 based on financial statements audited by Teal Becker. That's the that's the allegation in this lawsuit. And then HR imploded later that year. 
So they're saying, hey, you guys audited these financial statements. Uh, we gave out this line of credit. You are responsible for our our uh, failure of that loan. Yeah. And so the you know, TBC, the, the accounting firm, they're opposed to these claims, right? They're saying, oh, Pioneer Bank, you should have vetted this out more. But the lawsuit, when you start getting into a little bit of the details of the lawsuit, they really outline what was going on. So A, man admitted to his whole fraud now. You know, he said he started in 2010 or 11, and they didn't, it didn't catch up until September 2019. But during this whole entire time, TBC was auditing all the entities, and the lawsuit maintains that they should have just detected this when accounts receivable jumped from 4.1 million to 52 million between 2010 and 2018. Um, and revenue surged from 11 million to 168 million across these companies, even though they didn't really have, they, they, they're not, they're not, they weren't tracking across all those entities and that they were doing business with each other. So this goes back to that age old question are auditors expected to detect fraud? And I would put this back on the bank and I would say, well, you received these audited financial statements and the financial statements show the accounts receivable ballooning from like close to 2 million to 52 million in what, less than 10 years. And then the revenue growing like that. I mean, maybe, maybe the bank could have done a little due diligence here and figured this out. Like it, it doesn't, it's like there on the financial statements. And, and, and so they go on to say, Michael Mann specifically told TBC that Pioneer wanted these audits done to get a loan. So TBC was doing these, these, these audits specifically for Pioneer to get yeah. the loan. And the other argument is Mann's admitted that he created all these fake companies. Right. right? Yeah. And then TBC didn't really, they just, all right, we'll do the books for that fake company too. But they, they, fa- they failed to identify any of this fraudulent nature of these shell companies. I get it if somebody makes a mistake. But when these happen for years like this, it's really a failure of the system. Like like what what policies or procedures, like how is this missed? How could it go on for that long? How could it not be seen? I mean, but the the argument to argue the auditor side, if the client is providing fake invoices and false bank statements and is doing a really well good job is not really the right term, but is 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 perpetrating a very sophisticated fraud then your audit procedures aren't going to catch that necessarily. So what I think we need to see is, you know, in this lawsuit, they'll probably get into the audit procedures and whether or not that audit was performed in accordance with generally accepted auditing standards. And then we'll find out, right? Was it a deficient audit? Were they just signing off on these and not really performing the correct procedures? Like that's, that's when we're going to find out who's truly at fault here. So I have another article uh, that is from securitymagazine.com, SC Magazine. And basically, there is a QuickBooks phishing email that out there is in, but it's expertly framed. So what they're doing is they, when you send an, if I send you an invoice out of QuickBooks, you get the invoice in your email, has the button like to pay it right now, review and pay. You click that, it takes you to some other crazy website in Kuwait or something, right? So it's a completely fake website. But what they're doing is they've been, they branded it. They made it look just like it comes from Intuit. It looks like a legit QuickBooks email. And they've timed it. So when the, it arrives on the day it says the invoice is due, mm. you click the button and next thing you know, you're, you're passing it off. And you go to a landing page that looks just like the QuickBooks one and then you put in your credentials and then they've got it. Exactly. It, it, it goes down from there. And they also at the bottom, they even have additional text about you know being very careful about 
avoiding fraud. Like they, 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 they went all out to like even frame up like you should be careful when you click on links and emails to avoid fraud. They actually provide text like that. So yeah. just something to be aware of with your uh, clients. Hey, just if you do get an in, if you do get an invoice, be very careful before you pay it. Have those checks and balances, right? When you're paying your bills, an approver, somebody else to sandy check it. So if that's your process, if 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 you get payment notifications or bill due notifications or approval notifications via email, how do you make sure that you're not getting fake ones? Like how how can you possibly make that a safe process? You kind of have to mouse over the URLs. That's not going to happen. People aren't going to do that. And it's hard because they're they basically are impersonating QuickBooks at like the Microsoft 365 platform level. Yeah. And so it, it's very, very, very hard. Other than I, I feel like you just have to have that pause. This goes back to the Shark Tank lady. Barbara Corcoran. Right. Her, her bookkeeper got a text or whatever it was or, or an email that said, pay these people. And she just ACH them $230,000. I think if somebody's getting this, like pause, just because the bill's due today, don't pay it right then. Go and research like, is this really a bill? Were we expecting to have to pay this bill? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look for the inconsistencies, like you said. Uh, well, I've got an audit-related story. Congress unanimously passed a piece of legislation, David. Can you believe it? And it's about audit. <laughs> I, I didn't know Congress could do anything unanimously anymore. The House of Representatives passed a bill this week on Wednesday that threatens to ban trading of shares of Chinese companies such as Alibaba Group holding over concerns that their audits aren't sufficiently regulated. This is a bipartisan measure passed in the Senate in May, passed now in the House, and could quickly become law with President Trump's signature, which, you know, given his relationship with China these days, I think he's going to sign it. And what it does is it sets up a three-year period in which Chinese companies and their auditors would have three years to comply with inspection requirements in the United States on audits before a trading prohibition could take effect. So, Essentially, they are going to have to open up their audits to inspection by the SEC and I believe the PCAOB in order to continue to be listed on U.S. exchanges. And, and, and the issue is that these companies have access to U.S. capital markets and U.S. investors, but they are not held to the same standards as U.S. companies. My take is like, this is a, this is a good thing. If, if we're going to have companies listed in the United States, right, why, why shouldn't they be held to the same standards as U.S. companies? Or maybe above the standards, possibly. Yeah, right? But having less is not acceptable. All right, let's talk about app news. So, the base news so far, Blake, right? I think this week is Stripe. So, Stripe Treasury. Just how, you know, Stripe turned credit card processing for developers, app developers, into like seven, nine lines of code they could just paste into their app and now you can accept credit cards. Basically, they're doing the same thing across the board for all these new banking as a service companies. So right now, let's say, Blake, you wanted to create one of these fancy new banks for a small business. An app that is essentially a bank account. And so, so, so I'm a small business owner. I want to get, you know, you're, you're, you're going to create the app for me. So Blake, I would like to get a bank account. Mm. I'd like to do some expense management so I can have like virtual cards for my employees. Mm -hmm. I'd like to have in this app, the ability to pay bills. I'd like to be have the ability to move money between my bank accounts. And then store funds. Like, I want a real bank account with you. So, right now, Blake, prior to this announcement, you probably had to go establish relationships with five or six, seven different companies. A company who has bill pay APIs, a company that has, uh, you'd have to work with Visa and MasterCard for spinning up virtual credit cards. You'd have to work with a bank partner and their APIs to create a checking account, right? Right. right. You'd have to build all this. 
basically what they've done now, Stripe has taken all of that. It's basically banking as a service. And so you as a developer could just use Stripe and essentially build all this stuff out without using any other APIs of any other companies. They're playing the middleman and yeah. in, in, in offering all these services. So they're calling it Stripe Treasury and they're defining it as a banking as a service API and it lets you embed financial services in your marketplace or platform with a single integration, enable your customers to hold funds, pay bills, earn interest, and manage cash flow. Wow, this is super cool. I, I, if I were a bank and I wasn't partnered with Stripe right now, maybe I would be scared. This is really nifty. So they've partnered with Goldman Sachs, City, Barclays. There's one other logo here I'm not familiar with to make all this happen. That's Evolve Bank and Trust. So Evolve Bank and Trust is one of those smaller banks that like has gone um, tech forward with all their partnerships, right? So they're letting uh, all these companies build on top of Evolve Bank and Trust. Actually, Evolve Bank and Trust, you and I have a, an account set up with Relay Bank that runs on top of Evolve Bank and Trust. Melio runs through Evolve Bank and Trust. So these banks are already connected to lots of different apps. But like I said, as a developer, you'd have to build these relationships. But now you can just, just as, you know, they're taking this complicated thing and turning it into, I don't know if this is not necessarily nine lines of code, but it's a lot easier as a developer. It's so much easier. And you're going to, so yeah. if we thought we had an explosion of these new small business focused banking apps that were popping up in these banks, we're going to see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds in the next six months. Well, and it's not just like new ones. It's that existing companies that have anything to do with payments or, or balances are going to start integrating this into their app now. So instead of having to send the money to your existing bank account, they'll just spin one up for you like on the fly. I could easily see, especially some of these niche apps, like a construction app or, or uh, actually a good example is Clio Law Firm Software. Clio basically has, you know, their, their niche software for lawyers. They have their built-in CRM, right? They also have kind of a feature where it pulls in clients automatically, almost like a QuickBooks Live thing. Right. Now, what if they just built all the banking in for lawyers? That app just has it all in. Like why you don't need anything else. And that would solve so many problems because they could automatically put funds into the trust account correctly and move it over into the checking account when services have been provided and billed against. And like all this stuff that we do manually right now, they could completely automate because that's what, that's what lawyers are always doing. They're always screwing up the transfers. So there's a case study here uh, on Stripe that's also interesting. I wanted to talk about at launch, they've, they've partnered with Shopify so Shopify is using Stripe Treasury to power Shopify balance. So what that does is it's very similar to what you just described, David, where now Shopify merchants can get paid. And instead of waiting for that money to go into their connected checking account, they just get it into a, an account that Shopify provides. And then they can spend from that account too. I could be a, a brand new business, I think. It sounds like it. I could sign up for Shopify and they provision my checking account right there. I don't have to go and, and get a bank account from a you know Bank of America or Chase or whatever. What's interesting is they uh, have no intention to be a full-fledged bank. This is a quote from Stripe's co-founder. He said, we're not a bank and we're not planning on becoming a bank. He told the reporters on a video call on Wednesday, rejecting what he called the Silicon Valley mentality of doing everything themselves. And to reinforce that, they announced their partnership with Citigroup and Goldman Sachs to offer these banks. So just like you said, for Shopify, they're doing it. But now anybody with a Stripe can get a bank account. Not even it doesn't even have to go through the Shopify. They've they've opened this up to everybody. So if you're if you set up a Stripe account, you can get a bank account um, right through Stripe. And it's attacking. Like right now, most people have to send a fax 
to get a bank account. Right, right. And half need to go to the physical bank branch. And so the, the Stripe Treasury APIs are opening all this up. So you're just going to see, I mean, obviously Intuit's doing it. Like every app is going to have its own bank account. And if I want to commit fraud, I just sign up for a Stripe account. And now I've got a bank account where I can deposit all of my fraudulent payments. <laughs> We're going to see that a lot too, I bet. Uh, but and you know, this the- makes sense now because I was confused that we actually had, we had a support issue and uh, at Melio and somebody, because you, you provide your ACH information and somebody was doing with an account and one of their clients were putting their ACH numbers in for their Stripe account. Now it makes sense because they now have a bank account at Stripe essentially. Yeah, interesting. Uh, moving on to other app news, Intuit has expanded their TurboTax live offering into full service. So in 2021, for the 2020 tax year, you will be able to sign up for TurboTax Live full service, which sounds like is a complete human interaction for the whole tax filing process. So TurboTax Live is really an assisted sort of thing where I, as the customer, go in and I enter my W-2 information and I can click to schedule time to chat with that CPA or enrolled agent. It's almost like a video conference of some type, but I'm doing the work. Right. I'm doing the work. They're there to help me and check my work. Well, with this full service offering, they're going to do all the work. They'll put it in, they'll put in the forms. They will just like, you know, if you went to an HR block. So I upload all a bunch of PDFs and they just deal with it. Right. So I think that's going to appeal to a lot of people. And if I were HR block or any retail <laughs> tax place, I would be quaking in my boots I find it hard to imagine how, you know, this tax season, any of those, you know, retail tax places where people traditionally walk in survive because nobody's going to want to go during a COVID uh, outbreak. I didn't think about that this year. Yeah. So like H&R Block, like I wouldn't be surprised if like there's bankruptcy talked about, like, I mean, how do they, although they've got their own online offering too, but it just, they can't be good for the, for these. But uh, Liberty Tax, those places that have no software oh, yeah. front and like, I, I could see it could be very, very troubling for them. So, so just in my brain, I'm imagining how this could work. So right now, if I get like on my mobile phone, I get like TurboTax or, you know, and, and I'm, you know, I get my phone, I take a picture of my W2 and my other tax my other documents. And then I have to open up the app and then I have to actually finish filling out and going through all the wizards of TurboTax. Basically, I'm just going to take a photo of those docs. And then two hours later, two days later, I'm going to get an email just saying my taxes are done. It could be that simple. That's what it sounds like. Fully do it for me kind of situation. It'll be interesting to see how they execute on this because remember visor tax, that was kind of their model, right? Um, Like, like, are they going to get overwhelmed with volume of this? isn't to it like to where this doesn't work well hey if anyone can scale it it's going to be into it i mean they've got the the resources the people the money to make it happen and the network of accountants and bookkeepers they could easily ramp up and bring in well and that's the beauty of it is they have this whole group of they've got the quickbooks live they got the TurboTax live and these people can move in between the different service offerings as needed so they could take people who you know maybe they don't have enough bookkeeping work in January, February, March. Although that's hard to believe how they wouldn't. But let's say they had too many people in that department, they could have them, the ones that are credentialed, help with the TurboTax Live stuff. So it's all about economies of scale with this sort of thing, right? The margins are relatively low, but once you get at, at when you're not at scale, when you're small, but as soon as you get to scale, then it's really just you're comparing. You know what are the salaries? of the people that I am paying to be available versus the revenue coming in. And can I serve all those customers at once? And, and you just have to manage capacity. That's all. 
Did you know that Facebook acquired a CRM? I heard about this. Uh, it starts with a K, right? Yeah, it's called customer, but it's with the letter K. Um, the deal is valued a little more than $1 billion. I've never actually heard of this CRM before. So what do you think the point of this is? So you, this is called out because usually Facebook buys other social media companies, right? Right. Like Giphy and they're buying, you know, uh, Instagram and all that. This is the first time they really made a business software acquisition. And ultimately, it's really trying to help small businesses because there's the Facebook business, which is more like a interactive platform to, for you to interact with your coworkers, right? But then really... Facebook advertising in your if you're a small business and you have your Facebook page and you know you can they can chat with you contact you through your Facebook page it's almost like a business directory in a way right, right but right. you need to manage those relationships and because you can sell goods through Facebook now and so ultimately it's helping to bridge that gap and I guess Facebook's theory on this is the more I, the more successful they can help that small business owner be and manage that relationship with the customer the more money the small business owner is going to spend on ads on Facebook's platform. This makes a lot of sense to me because I I suspect that most of the businesses that are using Facebook as their primary digital channel are like super local small businesses. For them, a lot of them, their Facebook page, their Facebook business page is their only website and that's how they get all their business. I see, I, I've seen that even true for accounts and bookkeepers now. I, I do searches and I, and I can only find their Facebook page. And, and it makes sense because if you're a solo person, like your real identity connected to your business provides a lot of social proof to your potential customers. Like that's where they go to find professionals. Like if you want a massage therapist, you go on Facebook a lot of times to find recommendations and to find somebody. So I feel like most of those business owners are small enough where they don't have a CRM. And so if Facebook provides one to them for free as part of their business suite of services, it'll lock them in. All right. I'm using Facebook. It's my main landing page. They book appointments on my site. I charge them through my Facebook webpage. Right? Mm-hmm. Now my CRMs, imagine through my webpage, like, is Facebook going to have a GL? Facebook's going <laughs> to no, have a account? My, no, like, no, no, that March is very obvious. Like, you're going to keep them in there. I mean, it's a long stretch to go from CRM to general ledger. Let's just say that. I mean, there's oh, well, so much well, more they can do. But yeah, they can offer expense management. I could pay some bills through Facebook as well. I could, I, I could, I could like, see that. I could see Facebook... If if you can get paid via Facebook, you could certainly pay bills via their system too. I could see that. And well, what if Facebook can just spin me up a bank account and I don't have to actually set up a bank account and then connect it to pay my Facebook ads? They should definitely do that. They should definitely... And well, and then once you got the bank account, you've got the transactions. Like I actually predict, like and when we get a prediction episode, like we're going to see players that are not in our space in our space in 2021. Like this is like, you can see it very clearly. But I also think it's kind of funny... When when Facebook's be like, connect your bank account to Facebook, you're you know, <laughs> for the yeah. bank feeds. Like, like, I just like, like, oh my god, that's the dream for Facebook. <laughs> like, well, then then they would have. They already have so much data on you. Imagine if they had your transaction history too. That's scary. So we got one review. This is from Matt Metris on Podchaser. Five stars. David and Blake are my go-to source for up-to-the-minute info on all things accounting and tech. This is a must-listen every week and has been especially helpful in navigating all things 2020, especially PPP. Keep up the good work. Well, Matt, I'm glad that we talked at length about PPP because apparently people like it. David, if people want to connect with you online, where should they go? I'm just at David Leary on all the socials. If you reach out to me on LinkedIn, just say I'm not a bot so I know that you're a listener and not a, a spammer. 
And I am at Blake T. Oliver. Connect with me on Twitter or LinkedIn or both. David, until next week, stay healthy and uh, have a great, I don't know, another week of Zoom. More Zooms. Bye, everybody. (laughs) Bye. Time for the classifieds. I want to tell you about a new workflow solution called Bakotech. Bakotech is a cloud solution that puts CPAs in the middle of their clients' data. Bakotech gathers clients' data and delivers it to CPAs in real time through one login, enabling CPAs to make adjustments to tax returns and client accounting issues as they happen, not at for year end. Bakotech helps CPAs provide their clients with the proactive services they need and increases the firm's efficiency and leads to working less overtime and busy season. To learn more about Baco Tech, head over to bacotech.com. Looking to radically increase productivity as a cloud accountant? Introducing Client Hub's Frictionless Workflow, a unique combination of internal workflow seamlessly blended with client tasks and communications. See how a frictionless experience across your team and your clients will save you hours of time. Get started today with a free trial at clienthub.app. Enter promo code CAP25 for 25% off your first three months. Client Hub, truly frictionless workflow. Want to get the word out about your newsletter, webinar, party, Facebook group, podcast, ebook, job posting, or that fancy Excel macro you just created? Why not let the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast know by running a classified ad? Hit the show notes for the link to get more info, and be sure to check out our special stimulus pricing of four episodes for just $100.